The following is a presentation made at the 2015 Israel Lobby Con held at the National Press Club. Remarks from Gareth Porter. Uh, Gareth Porter is an investigative journalist and historian. He specializes in U.S. foreign and military policy. He's the author of five books, the most recent being Manufactured Crisis, The Untold Story of the Iran Nuclear Scare. He will be signing that book after this panel, if you want to stick around for that. In 2012, he won the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Investigative Journalism by the UK-based Gellhorn Trust. He will discuss the push for war on Iran. Thanks very much to the uh, organizers of this event, which um, this is the second uh, such event that I participated in, and uh, I'm really happy to see uh, the, the great uh, audience for the event and wish the organizers uh, all the best in continuing this tradition, as other speakers have suggested. Now, I know that uh, Reza Marashi is going to be focusing more uh, uh, laser-like on the uh, recent accord and, and what he expects to happen in the, in the near future on this. Uh, but, but I do feel that I, I need to introduce what I have to say about the, uh, the push for war uh, in Iran uh, with um, a few remarks, at least, about the, the recent developments regarding the negotiations in Lausanne, uh, because it does directly link to the, uh, a key part of what I have to talk about, which is the role that Israel has played in uh, the, the threat of war uh, between the United States and Iran. The recent uh, understanding, uh, interim tentative agreement reached in Lausanne, uh, as I think all of you know by now, uh, has suddenly been shown to be vulnerable uh, to uh, differences that were picked apart, if you will, uh, as a result of uh, things that happened immediately after the initial uh, agreement. That is to say, initially after the joint, uh, joint statement by the uh, P5 plus 1, uh, represented by uh, Ms. Mogherini of the EU on one side and Foreign Minister uh, Zarif on the, on the Iranian side. Uh, almost immediately, it became clear that, um, that there were uh, some other voices that were not prepared to simply allow that joint statement to stand, uh, including specifically the U.S. State Department, which issued its own agreement, its own, excuse me, its own text, uh, interpreting the tentative agreement, which departed specifically uh, from the uh, agreed joint statement with regard to the question of lifting sanctions. And that issue of lifting sanctions, I, I don't want to go into the details about this. I'm going to leave that to Reza to the extent that he is going to uh, dissect that problem. But specifically, the uh, the question of lifting sanctions is linked to the, the role of Israel through uh, specifically the problem of 
possible military dimensions. I put that in quotation marks. The, the, the famous PMD issue, which was one of the uh, issues that Iran pledged within this tentative agreement to implement uh, in terms of carrying out the, uh, the tot totality of the agreement. The, the Iranians agreed to implement a whole series of steps, one of which all the other steps had to do with either the transparency of their nuclear program or specific steps to constrain uh, their nuclear program. But there's one issue which departed from that uh, set, and that was the possible military dimensions of uh, the, the Iranian program. PMD, possible military dimensions, refers to allegations that have been made over the years uh, by uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, as well as Western governments, that Iran, in fact, did carry out nuclear weapons work, particularly between 2001 and 2003. But there are other allegations that extend at least potentially beyond 2003. Now, the, the linkage here uh, with the possible military dimensions uh, is, is uh, that the Iranians agree, supposedly, under this framework to explain or to give adequate access to the IAEA that the IAEA needs to be able to understand the issues that have to do with the allegations that have to do with uh, the, these supposed uh, Iranian nuclear weapons activities. And what I, what I need to, uh, to do at this point is to explain how this issue of possible military dimensions is, in fact, not a genuine issue, but an issue that was created, or as I put it in the title of my book, manufactured, part of a manufactured crisis that has been with us now for uh, a decade, uh, or, or a little bit more than a decade which revolves around the notion that Iran uh, you know, is, has been deceiving the rest of the world uh, for many years, that it has had covertly a nuclear weapons program, and that it has always coveted nuclear weapons. My book, Manufactured Crisis, The Untold Story of the Iran Nuclear Scare, lays out the real history of this issue of the Iran nuclear program uh, and shows that there has been essentially a false narrative created layer upon layer over the years that goes back uh, to the Clinton administration, certainly, and then uh, was developed, obviously, much more, uh, much more effectively, much more, a much more far-reaching way by the Bush administration handed over to the Obama administration, which has continued to take the position that that, in fact, represents the true history of, of the Iranian nuclear issue. Uh, and I don't have the time to go over that history, except insofar as it relates to the specific problem of the role that Israel played in creating that manufactured crisis. And to try to summarize this in just uh, a couple of minutes, what, what actually happened here was that in 2001, when the 
George W. Bush administration came into office. It had in its national security team a group of neoconservatives who were quite uh, determined to carry out a strategy in the Middle East that involved regime change, very far-reaching strategy of regime change, which essentially would remove all of the regimes in the Middle East who were not client states uh, of the United States and Israel, on the same side as the United States and Israel. And of course, we all know what the consequences of that, uh, that strategy were with regard to Iraq. The neoconservatives working through the, and with the full cooperation and support of the vice president's office, Vice President Dick Cheney's office, put together a, uh, what, what amounted to a false intelligence dossier that would show, that did show supposedly that Iraq had programs of weapons of mass destruction. That was the, the political lever that was used to push this country into a mood to support the US invasion of Iraq in 2003. Now, they, the same individuals in the Bush administration were planning to do the same thing with regard to Iran. Iran was on the list of five regimes which was to be changed through the use of military force, if necessary. And they did believe, uh, according to Hillary Mann Leverett, who was in the, on the National Security Council staff, in 2001 to 2002, and talked to some of the people who were part of this neoconservative coterie, they, in fact, expected that the United States would have to use force uh, in Iran. This plan, this, this Iranian part of the plan, was not to be carried out immediately. They had to consolidate control over Iraq militarily, and then they could move on using the military facilities that they would control in Iraq to put pressure on, to intimidate, and if necessary, to actually propel, uh, to project military force into the rest of the uh, region, including specifically Iran. As we all know, that didn't happen. To a great extent, it was because the, the resistance to the US invasion of Iraq was far stronger than the neoconservatives ever dreamed. And as a result of that, they did not have the opportunity, really, to push on uh, to Iran. Um, there was an effort made in 2007 by the vice president's office, by, by Cheney himself, to propose uh, a bombing uh, of targets in uh, Iran in case they could find an excuse in Iraq. But the Pentagon squashed that very quickly relatively easily, according to uh, what I understand, what I've read and, and have been told. So that was really the end of that threat, at least at that, at that period of uh, the history of this issue. And the, the role that Israel played in this plan that the neoconservatives had was to come up with the intelligence evidence that would be used against Iran. This happened in 2004, when a set of documents mysteriously materialized and uh, found its way into 
the hands of Western intelligence. And we, we now know that it was uh, the German intelligence agency which obtained the, the documents from, uh, on, at that time, unknown source, and then turned them over to the CIA, which then ultimately, through the Bush administration, these were turned over to the International Atomic Energy Agency and became the centerpiece of the political campaign, an extremely successful political campaign that has been waged ever since 2008, up to the present time, to convince the entire world that, in fact, uh, that Iran stood uh, accused with credible evidence of having had a secret nuclear weapons program, therefore cannot be trusted and must be subjected to an extraordinary set of arrangements, which would go 15, 20 years uh, with a set of constraints which no other state has ever been asked to accept. So just a few words then uh, about these documents, because uh, this is absolutely crucial to understanding this whole issue of possible military dimensions, and therefore to understanding, I would argue, the fate of this accord which was reached in Lausanne, because it, it is indeed uh, the, the possible military dimensions issue which constitutes the biggest threat uh, to reaching an accord. This is, this is the part of the agreement that, uh, that clearly would take the longest number of years, the longest period of time, and which Iran uh, clearly is afraid would be used by the United States and its Western allies to actually prevent Iran from being able to have uh, the relief from the sanctions that are the primary interest that they have in these negotiations. So that's why this is so important. Now, what role did the Israelis play? In my book, I make the case that these documents were fabricated by the Mossad International Intelligence Service of, of uh, Israel, and that the documents were then passed on to the Mujahideen Kalk, the exiled Iranian terrorist organization. It's now gotten off the list. It's been given a pass, a get-out-of-jail-free card, uh, by the uh, State Department um, under the Obama administration. But at that time, it was understood to be a terrorist organization both uh, in the United States and in European countries. And more importantly, it was known, and, and it's well-documented, to have been a client organization of Israel's Mossad, having served the purpose of laundering intelligence or, or alleged intelligence, purported intelligence, that the Israelis did not want to have attributed to the Israeli government, to, to Mossad. Um, uh, there, there are more than one examples of this that are, that are now well-documented and even documented in a popular book published in Israel, in Hebrew, by a strong supporter of Mossad. It's a history, a popular history of Mossad's uh, biggest successful covert operations, uh, one of which, he argues, uh, asserts, and, and says he has the evidence to support it, was these, uh, these documents which were passed on 
uh, to the IAEA ultimately through this chain, uh, but which he says the Mujahideeni calc got from Mossad. He doesn't claim that all the documents came from Mossad, but he does claim that some of those documents definitely came from Mossad. Uh, so, so that is the sort of the, the chain of custody that I reconstruct in my book. Um, the, the evidence that the documents came from Israel uh, it is, it, you know, it, there, there's no smoking gun in, this, in the person of a former Mossad whistleblower that I can point to. But I can point to, and I do quote the uh, former German foreign office official, senior uh, foreign office official, who gave me an interview uh, on, the, on the record saying that, that he knew for a fact, because he was told by senior officials of the German intelligence service, that those documents did come from Mujahideen Kalk. They did not come from some uh, former Iranian engineer or scientist who was part of this supposed Iranian covert nuclear weapons program. So that, that was the, that was the uh, story that had been passed on to the news media, as well as to the IAEA by Bush administration officials. So, so that's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence is that these documents uh, were just part of a series of handovers of documents by the Israelis to the IAEA. There was a second series of documents that were given by the Israelis to the IAEA beginning in 2008 and continuing through 2009. We know this because former IAEA Director General Mohammed al-Baradai specifically states this in his book uh, based on his own knowledge of what was going on when he was there in 2008 and 2009 before he retired from the agency. And the, uh, the uh, fact, the very interesting fact is that despite Mohammed al-Baradai's telling uh, all of us this through his memoirs, no mainstream news source has ever reported that any of these documents, which were later featured by the IAEA in a report in November 2011, came from Israel. This fact has always been covered up by the news media. I'm the only journalist who's ever reported, and every time I write about these documents, I always point out the evidence that they came from Israel, including Elberadai's uh, own experience in his memoirs. But the IAEA itself has never acknowledged that the documents came from the, uh, from the Israelis in its reports. This has never been mentioned. Uh, it's never been mentioned in the news media. The argument has always been that these documents were, uh, had to be, uh, the, the source of the documents had to be kept secret because it would reveal sources and methods. This is the usual intelligence speak for uh, not providing any information about where, uh, the, where the source uh, originated, what the original source was. But of course, this doesn't apply at the national level. Uh, this is an entirely different level, and the, the rule obviously should be different because the, the world's public has a right to know in making their own judgment about the credibility of, of these documents, 
where they originated. What was the source? If they came from Israel, as Alberti said they did, then clearly these documents reflect the national interests of the Israelis, and they should be scrutinized with extraordinary care rather than being assumed uh, to be authentic. So that's the second point. Uh, the, the other point that I want to make about authenticity is that the IAEA during the Alberadai regime, when he was uh, director general, did not believe that those documents were authentic. They believed that they were fabricated. I know that for, for a fact from a former IAEA, a senior IAEA official who, uh, off the record, was not willing to be quoted, told me that, uh, that they understood that the, these documents uh, not only had not been authenticated, but they were probably not authentic for a variety of reasons. He, you know, clearly, he distrusted those documents, and he acknowledged that uh, Alberadai felt the same way. Um, then there's a final point that I want to make, and that is that uh, for all kinds of uh, reasons, it's, it's clear that the, 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 this second series of, of documents, there are uh, linkages between what is uh, claimed in these documents and information that we can definitely attribute to the Israeli government. For one thing, the Israeli government leaked to Israeli journalists in 2009, that they, uh, sorry, in 2011, excuse me, that they, in fact, had provided most of the important documents that the IAEA was using to indict Iran. And then the final thing I want to, uh, point I want to make is that, uh, that if you go back to 2004, there is a very important set of, uh, 2003, 2004, there's a very important set of trips that John Bolton, who was the Bush administration's point man, both on weapons of mass destruction as well as on Iran and on Israel, made a series of trips to Israel, at least some of which were not authorized. I believe none of them were authorized by the regional bureau of the State Department, which is absolutely firm practice, a rule of the State Department, that a senior official wanting to visit a country must get the approval of the regional bureau uh, to, to visit that country. That approval was never given by the Bureau on, Middle East, uh, on Near East and South Asia in the State Department. And during some of those visits, we know, you know from uh, testimony to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when Bolton was being nominated to be the ambassador to the United Nations, that he met secretly with the head of Mossad. Now, one of those trips was in June of 2003, and a few weeks later, within a matter of weeks, we know from journalists who have no axe to grind on this, and they're certainly not anti-Israeli, they are far more supportive of Israel uh, than the usual journalists, we know that Mossad set up a new office that summer, 2003, the explicit purpose of which was to influence the opinions of the world's press and governments about the Iranian nuclear program. And it was during the period from the summer of 2003 to early to mid-2004 when these documents were clearly being fabricated. 
Um, now, I'm running out of time, but I just want to add that I also, in my book, have an analysis showing how these documents could not possibly be authentic because key points in the documents, particularly the uh, drawings of the Shahab III Iran missile, Iranian missile, which is supposedly shown uh, as efforts to, uh, to, to integrate a nuclear weapon into the, into the missile, uh, into the uh, nose cone of the missile. It, it, the drawings show the wrong missile. It shows the earlier version of that missile, which the Iranians had already abandoned in, in uh, the year 2000, and had begun to redesign it, which was known. It was known that the Iranians were redesigning the missile. What was not known was that the nose cone of that missile, the reentry vehicle, would look completely different. And it was only in mid, it was only in uh, July, August 2004 that foreign intelligence agencies for the first time knew that the nose cone did not resemble the original one. So it was, th these documents were fabricated by someone who was not in the Iranian government, who was not aware of what their plan was for their development of a, of a missile, redesign of a missile. It was fabricated by a, form, a foreign entity that did not know what was going on until it was too late, until those documents were on their way to the Mujahideeni Kalk and thus through this chain to the IAEA. Uh, so uh, what, uh, just in conclusion, what I want to uh, impress upon you is the importance of these fabricated documents and the role of Israel in the uh, current problem of negotiating with, with uh, the Iranians a deal that will, will hold because it is these documents that constitute the, the most difficult part of that deal, a part that the Obama administration continues to say we are going to insist that the Iranians must explain, must give an account of these documents uh, that is acceptable to the IAEA. And, and the Iranians obviously have been arguing from the beginning, well, you know, these are fabricated documents. What do you expect us to say? What do you expect us to do? And they're going to give access. Uh, they, I've been told by an uh, Iranian source that, that they will give the access that the IAEA asked for, but that they're not going to be held uh, accountable for explaining these in a way that corresponds to the position of the Western governments or to the position that the IAEA has taken in the past. And that is a potential uh, crisis within the negotiations, which we still don't know exactly how it's going to play out. And I hope that it will, in fact, be resolved. But I think that it is the most dangerous part of the situation at this point. Thank you very much.